We all see something different when we look at the sky. Meniscus of streetlights drifts like duckweed along the rims of my eyes, languid, flickering for hours, symphonic, white hot, in each shattered mirror on the pavement. Mold eats silver, eats air, eats dust, eats wood, eats grass, eats breasts, eats leather, eats the four of cups, eats velour and weathered rugs, eats envy, eats time, eats cash, shits grain, shits watercolor splotches, excretes blue raspberry effluvia. In mossy dark where music puddles, the refrain goes, now there's no more winter like this, which is to say, nobody puts baby in a corner. Flash, fermata. People walk their turtles through Parisian arcades in 1839. The year before, a scientist at École Centrale deciphered cellulose. But enough about the world on fire. Moonlit, even you swell into surface. Now there's no more winter like this. How's your day been? How's Berkeley? <laughs> it was really rainy today. Um, we have had more rain than pretty much ever in like the past decade or so it it snowed where it doesn't normally snow and people are freaking out no one can drive i went up to tahoe um my boyfriend wanted to go skiing i don't understand snow (laughs) so i was just like okay i'm gonna try this out and i think i've been traumatized by it (laughs) I went from neutral to like, I don't know what this is. It's very mm-hmm. cold. I can't walk. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Um, South Bay. So I grew up in California. Um, and then after went to college in California. And then afterwards, I like did a couple of different things and moved around a little bit more. Um, I like basically changed what I was doing every year. So I was in Washington state for a little, and then I came back for a bit. And then I was in um, mainland China teaching English. Then I went to the UK for a master's and then to Taiwan for a language program. And then I came back. It was like, so that was my um, first time in mainland China. I don't know how much you know about like the relationship between China and Taiwan, should I? I know it's complicated. Yeah, so basically my family is from Taiwan and I've been to Taiwan many times, but um, for more or less like the entire 20th century, Taiwan and mainland China have gone on very different trajectories. So um, there's a lot about like, sort of the day-to-day life of living there that's pretty different in these two places. So for me, China was kind of a shock. Um, The language is technically the same, but with like a pretty noticeable difference in accent. So um, people in Taiwan will speak Taiwan, like Mandarin um, inflected a certain way compared to the mainland and um, just yeah, it was like a very, it was a very chaotic workplace and also a very big city, even though it was a technically like um, a second tier city in China. I was in Hangzhou. So there was a lot of, for me to like adjust to there. Do they get, do they like judge you if you speak in like the, another accent? So like, I mean, because of like, 
like China Taiwan political tensions, there's sometimes kind of awkwardness there. There are a lot of different accents and dialects in China, um, like the People's Republic of China itself. So even just walking around, for example, like taxi drivers are often quite hard for me to understand because their Mandarin is so inflected by a certain dialect. Um, but when they real like when people realize I'm from Taiwan, like no one I encountered actually except for one person really like wanted to no one wanted to like start an argument or anything but sometimes people would be like oh like the province of taiwan which is in part because that's how people refer to taiwan by default like as a province of another province of china but um it just yeah it's like a little weird i'm trying to think of like a good analogy for the u.s is that like a a derogatory thing like a put down like oh that's the province of taiwan not like not so much a put down but because like taiwanese independence is such a hot button issue right like the people's republic of china wants to claim ownership over taiwan um and there's quite a number of people in taiwan who don't want that um with mm -hmm. like a lot of history behind it as well it's kind of like an insistence on a certain version of the truth um, I think like bef well, it's a little bit like Russia laying claim to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. when, like when you when you were there, was there like a lot of uh, were you worried that like something was gonna happen? like a like a war breakout or something? I was there twenty fifteen to twenty sixteen. So I really didn't. This was like, I was there when Brexit happened, which at least for me, I feel like is kind of a major turn in my sort of my consciousness of how um, like virulent a certain kind of like xenophobic right wing contingent was like, obviously, maybe this is like revealing of a certain naivete on my part but i feel like after you know brexit happened and after trump was elected things just seemed a little different so oh, i yeah. feel like yeah china like pe the people's republic of china has had missiles pointed at taiwan since like 1996 or something oh my God. so and they like regularly do military demonstrations but it always more or less seemed like a show of force and even now i'm not so I don't I'm like not up to date enough on contemporary politics to be really informed about this. But like my general sense is like unlikely for mm -hmm. China to really invade. It doesn't really make sense, I think. Um, but they are invested in like routinely acting like they will or, you know. Yeah having these so, kind of demonstrations so what were you studying over there um so when i was in china i was working and then when i was in taiwan i was really like in a language program for chinese language because i'm a heritage speaker so i kind of grew up speaking like i grew up speaking chinglish at home more or less what is that so I it's oh, like Chinese plus English. Oh, wow. I've never heard of that. Yeah. 
so like my mom would speak to me in Chinese and I would just respond with like whatever. <laughs> um, and I was not a very good student of Chinese when I was forced to go to Saturday Chinese school. But in college, I decided to like continue taking language classes. And then I've sort of ended up on this path, even though I think I'm still, you know, pretty mid as far as language skills go. Oh, really? You're like a professor, though. I feel like you should be pretty good. I'm an I'm a graduate student. Oh, so, yeah. Um, I'm still pretty currently good, doing a PhD. I'd say I'm I'm OK. <laughs> So at first, though, you were not into Chinese, like as a language. Yeah, no, I didn't. I was not very interested in it. And my undergrad degree was also primarily looking at like English and French literature. So what made you come around to it? Just like just because you kept doing it and you felt like you could go back to it? I guess I became more interested in... Chinese like literature specifically in undergrad when I was taking actual classes on it because um I don't like come from a particularly cultured family so like no one was very interested in like art or music or literature um and so I wasn't really exposed to any of it until college and then after that, I thought it was kind of an interesting question or like the sort of like literary modernism in China and Taiwan posed a question that was really interesting to me because I wasn't really seeing the same types of issues discussed in the European context, at least at the undergrad level. Yeah. Like what issues? Yeah. So I guess like the question of modernity, right? Um that a lot of writers were confronted with at the turn of the century was something that I was really interested in, um, specifically like development of a modernist style, um, use of free and direct discourse, the question of like how to textually represent an interiority when like the world is falling apart um, was something that I guess I was like just really compelled by and then in the Chinese context there were the sort of like reality of um how to cultivate a kind of new literary tradition was faced with like a fairly different set of circumstances so in mainland China um, that had to do with like the state of semi-colonialism, right? So parts of China had been carved out by various European powers after like the 19th, like successive battles and wars lost in the 19th century. So if you like look at Shanghai, even now, the sort of riverside front reflects like a wide variety of European architectural styles. So they had to come up with a way to write about a kind of like modern culture or a modern nation while repelling or like writing against this sort of like 
I guess so. I want to like backtrack. They actually like incorporate all of these sort of like European traditions in like crafting a sort of new modern vernacular. So they're writing against like a number of things. One is like sort of traditional China after the fall of the dynasty in 1911. They're also writing against imperialism though. So that kind of that that issue is not separate, I guess, from the question of like writing, of, of creating a new modern language, but instead of like, just kind of like discarding it or, you know, mm-hmm. repelling it completely, it a lot of the sort of 19th century and 20th century European literary styles become um, cobbled together in early 20th century like Chinese texts. So I guess stuff like that, um, although my way in was really more through Taiwan and that was a whole different issue. I have a question about the Chinese like politics. Like when when like Mao came in, did they like toss out like all of this writing that you were saying like was happening in like 1911? Um, it's really complicated. So I guess when Mao Zedong consolidated power in mainland China and promoted a certain kind of um, socialist realism, some things were banned. Um, Some people were banned and some people were kind of like rebranded. So um maybe the most prominent example is um Lu Xun who's considered like modern China's greatest writer or you know something like that is he what do you think of his work I think he's fine (laughs) sorry that was really revealing that's no problem (laughs) he's fine he's okay he's not that great though there's some stuff of his that I like. Okay. Um, yeah. I guess I'm also not really that big on like greatest writer type labels. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he gets like sort of held up as the archetypical left wing writer, but a lot of his actual works are not as clear cut as um, socialist realist texts would perhaps like require so he writes um he's like very well known for his short story collections many of which depict um impoverished like basically yeah the immiserated and impoverished people in modern china um for which in his first short story, like Mad Diary of a Madman, he kind of seems to be castigating like old feudal society for the production of this sort of immiserated class. So you can see how there are these like left wing concerns, but he doesn't quite like. He never writes anything that's like a pedagogical novel that instructs you on how to be a good left-wing thinker, which is um, what certain like 
I guess like socialist realist films are especially interested in. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I like started a couple sentences and then stop like started new ones before stopping there. <laughs> but you're fine. So like what what writers do you like? Let's shift into like what your interests. Um yeah, so I think one short story that I've read recently that I thought was really interesting and I'm still kind of thinking about is a story called Three Men and a Woman by Shen Cong-wen. So Shen Cong-wen is another sort of major literary figure who's mostly kind of associated for his depiction of rural life in um, West Hunan, as well as for like folkloric customs. I'm trying to find, I kind of- Is he still around? Uh, no, he is dead. Oh. I'm like hesitating now, even as I say that though, I'm like not the best at years. Oh, you're fine. Um, but he did live to the 80s, um, which is more than many of these other writers working in this period can say. Like part of this question of like, what what did the sort of rupture with communism entail is like between Mao taking over the um, war of resistance against japan so like world war ii basically um various like warlord activities so many of these people like died or were branded like enemies of the state and like sent down or whatever i like have a hard time keeping track but shinsongwen was one of these people who i think was sent down at some point um but this was an earlier work and it is about like these men garrisoned in this small rural town. Um, and they basically just like, it's like the protagonist is maybe like the squad leader. And then he is friends with someone from his hometown who falls off a rock the first day they're there and like permanently injures his foot. And they hang out at the store of this tofu seller all day three of them become good friends because all of them are interested in like this girl next door who is the daughter of like the local business association so there's like a bunch of there's like a class dynamic there but there's also kind of like a homosocial slash homoerotic bond that develops between the men who are also then mirrored up off of each other um but yeah the story is kind of interesting because the girl ends up killing herself and you have yeah wow (laughs) yeah it's like actually so much of the story is like actually focused on these three men and the stuff they do together they like go to executions together um and yeah you know manly stuff like that although the seller doesn't like he doesn't like it as much as the others but yeah when she dies like i guess allegedly um the her body ends up disappearing and the friend um with the 
sort of yeah the disabled friend ends up like trying to go find her body because of some myth that if you like dig up a body that has of someone who like had died by swallowing gold they're not actually dead and kind of is just like this weird plot that emerges in this like small town yeah that's awesome so like what speaks to you about that story that like makes it your like your favorite oh i guess i i wouldn't i don't know if it's my favorite i think i'm always kind of just like <laughs> i can't pick favorites <laughs> and okay. but it was it was interesting to me, I think, because like it's just so weird and perverted, I guess, like this thought of like this girl who is who's like in who after she dies, like they're compelled to go like find her dead body. Like what are they going to do with it, right? The implication mm -hmm. is that there's still some kind of like sexual desire that's directed towards a dead body that, like, or like some kind of void that I think is really interesting. Um, I'm like kind of going back and looking at my, notes and i think like something else that's kind of interesting about it is just there's a lot of desire in this like the men are more or less like their day-to-day -day activity is more or less like structured by this repressed desire for this girl but it emerges through like violence um when they go to like watch an execution there's like this description of these four bodies whose clothes have been like torn off by soldiers who wanted clothes um sorry these are four bodies of bandits and they've been like torn off and they're like compared to like lump like yeah lumps of pig basically wow lying there it's just like yep. a little it's like a, a story that's like seemingly pleasant at first um it begins with like a storyteller's invocation of like, oh, it's raining, so let me tell you, or my friends want me to tell a story of a rainy day, and then it like ends like this. It's like everyone is miserable or dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you know, you're 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 into like French stuff, right? Yeah, I think. Do you, um, do you like know about um, the Trecotus? It's like women that would go watch like public executions. And they would like knit things together. Like that just I just got reminded of that when you were telling me about that story. I have I did not know. Yeah. I think if I've ever encountered them, it would have been a while by now. But yeah, there's like something the sort of like public spectacle of death is um I guess something that's like very normal I, like what else are you going to do and of course yeah. like it's about this as well but um it's like all over it seems like these books from the early 20th century because it's a part of everyday life but it's also kind of a thing that like makes us reflect on what um like how elements of brutal spectrum spectacular brutality are kind of like part of our everyday life in a little in some ways i suppose like we don't 
go to um we don't go into town to watch people get paraded through and executed but it's hard not to think about like videos of violence right that circulate a lot online would you go to a public execution and if you did what would you do during the public <laughs> i actually don't think i have the constitution for it visually i like yeah. can't even watch violent films <laughs> yeah that's Maybe hard to watch like, it in literature. like the realistic ones of violence is hard to watch for me yeah i think like i always feel like i don't know do you ever feel like a kind of like sympathetic reaction in your body mm -hmm. yeah even for things that are not like necessarily that brutal i'm just like if somebody if like a screw goes through someone's head i feel like an itch yeah i, I can watch like campy pro pro wrestling but i can't watch like ufc shit and, and plus like ufc is like boring to me <laughs> yeah so um, what have you always been interested in like literature and arts i guess so i like i mean i think i've always liked to read um mm -hmm. but i guess i don't think a lot of the stuff i read growing up counts as literature if we like what did you read you growing know? up gosh i don't know harry potter oh, um yeah. was oh, there was a lot of that um Guess it depends on like what age group or like what age we're thinking of but diana wynne jones a lot of fantasy um if we're thinking younger than that like i like find myself referencing the american girls like the, that book series with like alarming frequency i don't even know why <laughs> is it good is it like a good series like, I think so. For first graders, it's great. <laughs> oh, I know. It's like a first grade thing. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I like went younger instead of older. Okay. Um, you still read those? Honestly, I'm like a little curious about them because I wonder like how... Do you know anything about them? No, um, no. Okay. So they basically... It's like a book series that picks a girl from a different time period of American history and they like Wait, have books about Do they come with dolls? Yeah, they're the yeah, dolls. Yeah, I know what they are. I know what they are. Yeah. I'm like really I guess like as as like a 7-year-old or or whatever, I did not find anything objectionable about like the politics or how they portray like american history but i'm really wondering now it's probably much worse than i remember yeah i think some of them are pretty problematic most likely i just think like things have changed so much in terms of like what we generally see as um problematic that i i'm wondering how they hold up do you know uh emma Inslee, like in the gr shabby doll house group i i i mean i think we've like been at meetings together but i don't know her super well oh she would know all about this doll stuff so when how do you how do you come into the shabby doll house and like the readings and everything did you like get I, published in the magazine oh no i wish i read an interview that lucy did with Rochelle in um, Peach Mag. 
And it was an interview about the book club. And I think in the interview, Lucy said something about how like, it's more just more or less just a group of people getting together to talk about a book. And if this seems like it would be fun to you, you can come or start your own. And I was like, maybe I'll come. And so I did. And now I've like stayed. Mm -hmm. So you were reading like Peach Mag though. Yeah, occasionally. Um, I don't, I'm like trying to remember now how I came across it in the first place, but I don't, I think it's like very much like a contingent encounter. I don't really, there's like no natural pathway that would have taken me to Peach Mag, but I must've just been like reading around Lit Mags online or something. Do you normally read a lot of Lit Mags? I like reading lit mags. I think I'm not very like disciplined about it. Um, but I yeah, just every now and then I like reading poetry or short stories online. So what was the first book that you when you came into the group? And was it like like hard to come into the group? Was it like weird or scary like to come into a new group of people? It was I was definitely a little like apprehensive, but I thought it was really fun. Um, I think it was, um, shoot. What is, yeah, okay. It was um, Ann Carson's If Not Winter. No, wait, maybe that was the second one. I think the first one was um, Banu Kapil. What was How to Wash a Heart? I think one I missed all those. those. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. it was it was one of those two, whichever one came first. But those were the first two meetings I attended, and I was like very nervous about talking. Well, I think you do great now. So, <laughs> um, when did you go into the? When did you take Caroline's class? And you decided you wanted to be like. Have you written poetry before? Um, I guess I also in a very undisciplined way do write occasionally um i decided to take her class um okay wait sorry first was when i took her class i think it was january of last year um when she did it then i just had such a fun time um I guess reading and talking about these poems in the book club um, and I like Caroline's poetry so I decided to go ahead and do it but I think something that I like about like both that class in particular um, but also what book club enables is a kind of like engagement with reading and writing um that's like very different from what i normally get in like over the course of my phd as maybe you could tell by how it was like talking about the books that you asked me about and like the sort of like history of um like literary modernity in china it's like a lot less um A lot less personal, obviously, and I think a lot less about the actual craft and what it can do for people reading it. I think like 
the way that we end up being trained to study literature is often related to like a larger socio-political or historical context totally. or like talking about um when even like when you're doing close reading a lot of it is a kind of about like maybe um this crafting a certain formal space or kind of temporality etc that is it's like it can be fun in a different way but i think especially it's, at that point i was like a little burned out of it well it's like void of like any personality or voice that you may have you're kind of writing yeah. in like someone else's format and formulaic structure even though that yeah. can i know some people argue that like that even like promotes or propels creativity to some people it may but to others it does come off if you don't have like the book club it can be very like like it grips your voice from you i guess i don't know yeah i think like voice matters so much more in like spaces that are more focused on creative writing um even when they're not like or i guess with like book club it's like mostly a group of writers right who are approaching it with their own practice in mind um and yeah that's just super different who were some of the other people in the your class with caroline uh rochelle was in it <laughs> oh nice awesome yeah um oh, that's cool because she's like she's like a grad student at like uh I, I don't know i forget massachusetts or something I think she's at UMass Amherst, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and she's like doing, I believe, like a oh gosh, this is like so embarrassing. <laughs> Isn't, she's doing an MFA, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like what she's doing and how she's being trained is also like super different. Um, That's crazy that really she would take an online course while she's also in grad school it's true <laughs> for like a similar thing but it was great i loved having her there um i feel like i need to like go back and look at the people in the class or something because i don't totally re don't totally remember everybody's names so like with your poetry do you send them out to magazines to be published i like tried it like once and i or i guess i like there was like a period um when i was i like tried sending stuff out but i haven't really done it in a while because i've been so busy with like school mm -hmm. um but it's but kind you... of harrowing it's like a little nerve-wracking oh yeah do you feel like <laughs> you've been published though with the advent calendar and like when did lucy approach you um so I guess I like had published with um, Ghost City Press's website. Oh, really? Um, wow. Once, and that was like the first thing. Um, but I, I guess like the advent calendar kind of feels like a, a publication and it was really nice. Lucy sent an email out maybe like must, something like November. Mm -hmm. um and i said i was interested 
Is um, it like late November? Possibly late November. <laughs> okay. Um, I definitely didn't have something to, I didn't really have time to write something. Um, so do you and, think Caroline like suggested it to Lucy? I have no idea. Uh, did she ask you? Did she ask you specifically for that poem? No. Oh, okay. No, it was like a you can like. Would you like to send anything in? And I kind of wanted to send um, in. Gosh, I feel like I honestly didn't put that much thought into which one I picked, but maybe I just don't remember anymore. But I wanted to send in something from Caroline's class because um, it feels more like, you know. Aligned. That, yeah, and like part of that kind of community that I really like. So if the Dollhouse magazine, like, if they started republishing it, would you send something in? Um, if I could like get over my embarrassment, yeah. <laughs> they would probably ask you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I really like it. I really like um and admire this like the this project, I guess, that Lucy has built over the past ten years or so, just kind of keeping at something and cultivating a literary community that's outside of institutional spaces and institutional support mm. um it it's feels really like meaningful it's very interesting because she never went to like uh grad school for like an mfa she just wanted to do it because she felt like doing it and i think it like at the time that she did that there was there was this whole movement called alt lit and i think it like yeah. it kind of attached itself to lucy and anyways her writing is sort of similar with i guess other people who wrote at that time but anyways yeah it's just amazing what she's been, been able to do oh no i was just wondering like how long you've known lucy and like your i guess i hope mm, probably since like 2016 since okay. i found out about the dollhouse and because at first i knew sarah jean just through twitter and then i saw sarah jean like was editing like a magazine and so i started looking into that and the magazine itself and then it said had a they had a Facebook group for the Shabby Dollhouse Reader, which was like a monthly, like their own like monthly magazine. They bring in people and do like a little newsletter with people from like the little like indie indie community they have. And I subscribed to that, and that's how I kind of knew them. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. Oh, you're fine. Are you excited for Moan Wilds? I am. Yeah. I feel like I've heard Caroline read parts of it um, and it always feels like such an experience. It's like kind of, I don't know, dizzying and fascinating, um, especially with like the kind, I feel like her poetry has such a sort of sonic quality to it right um mm -hmm. that you kind of get carried along with as she's reading um but i'm also see excited to like see it as text <laughs> and when you were reading the peach interview with lucy was it like did you see that and you're like oh these are two women talking and that kind of intrigued you not really actually i oh. that part yeah that part <laughs> didn't really <laughs> have any effect on what's <laughs> I think it was less 
um less about like seeing women writers in conversation for me as like finding a way to have a literary and intellectual community outside of the university because mm -hmm. I've just I think like especially it kind of came to me at a time when I was pretty sick of like graduate seminars um, um like feeling a bit stalled by how I was supposed to be making a lot of progress, but then there was this pandemic and I found like, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I don't know how much, whether you're like in a position where you're sick of hearing about this, but the state of the humanities is totally dire. It's like impossible to get a job, not even sure a job is all that like great anyway. Um, yeah. So I was just like really, inspired by this possibility of like you know just rejecting the institution as like some kind of like necessary thing for continuing to like spend your time doing this which is maybe like a bit silly like talking to somebody who's been involved in indie light groups for a while but i guess that's where um. i was emotionally <laughs> Oh, you're fine. I'm very interested in your experiences, like being getting tired of the institutional ways that we speak about literature. Would you ever start your own? Didn't don't you edit a magazine? Like I do. Yeah, okay. I'm actually key. Yeah, so I'm key. technically in abstention at the moment because um, I'm taking the semester off from like my editorial duties. Um, but yeah, key is a spin-off of a, a graduate-run academic journal called Kipakla that I'm also an editor of. So basically all of the editors of Key are also people who edit this journal but are interested in publishing works that engage with some kind of like theoretical project in a different register from like a typical academic paper so poetry arts um, we've also published an interview with um, a new media artist so thinking about like ways that people engage with critique um, that aren't purely through like the language and format of an academic argument um but yeah it's like really new i think it we've only published one issue so far <laughs> how's that going do you enjoy that yeah i really like it um it's like it's just kind of fun and in a way when we like get together and talk about submissions it feels it's like really interesting to see what grips people what people don't like and how people are trying to like grapple with the idea of like what we're trying to do as a as a kind of like pseudo lit mag pseudo academic thing it's like a kind of it's like a it's not all that um what am I trying to say? I guess like the sort of mission statement is a bit vague because the sort of endeavor is by necessity a little bit vague and open-ended. So it kind of gets created through like these conversations that we have looking at pieces and like what people want to solicit. 
I feel like that's with most like online lit mags because you don't really it's hard to like even create something beforehand because you don't know what the work is that you're going to be sent. So it's really hard to pin anything down. Yeah, it's kind of exciting. Like, do you enjoy being part of these processes? Uh, Well, I've tried to start like one or two or three lit mags and then I like chicken out right before I'm supposed (laughs) to put it out. And I didn't know people like started mags with their friends. I was always just doing it by myself. So I've always wanted to start one, but I never have. I got really close. Rochelle is helping me create one and then I didn't do it. But now I do this, so maybe one day. Yeah, I think like I'm also not, I wouldn't describe myself as the driving engine behind Key, but I'm like, I don't know, an enthusiastic passenger who occasionally, um, is a backseat driver or something. I don't know, this metaphor is a little overburdened. <laughs> How did you become the editor behind it? Um, it was, so basically when people wanted to create this offshoot, they just asked all the editors, um, on the board of Kipaglo if they wanted to participate. So it was pretty chill. And it's not, is it connected to the college? So Kipaglo is, um, Mm -hmm. and... So Kipakla is a academic journal from the critical humanities and social sciences. That's um, it was started by um, Avital Ronell in I think the eighties or something, and it's been run by a graduate Berkeley graduate students since then. Um, and like as in as of now. In the, like the past few years, it's been published through like Duke University Press. So, um, as a kind of like sort of offshoot of QP is what we usually say so to save everyone the effort of saying Kipaglo over and over again. Um, uh-huh. Like, technically, Key has to be like hosted independently because it's not quite like we don't we we aren't putting everything past, I think, the, like, Duke University Press. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a little bit more independence outside of the mission statement, which I believe they had to approve. Oh, you had to get it approved to, like, create the journal? Yeah, since technically it's all, like, technically the journal is, the sort of main journal itself is published through Duke University Press. Oh, so you can't do like anything you wanted to do. Like there's certain language, certain choices in language you couldn't make. I think we had to like justify having a fake lit mag as part of this like academic journal. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we have. Have you felt about like marketing it or trying to get the word out there about this new magazine? Yeah, so um, Justin Green, the editor-in-chief and the... um, perhaps like well edit justin green and naima karshmar are the editors-in-chief and i believe managing editor of key and i think that they've been doing um a lot more publicity justin for sure has been like trying to publicize on twitter and i both of them are published writers justin has an mfa so i think they're like a lot more connected to that whereas i 
have not done as much um on that front so do you think it's more for like grad students than like anyone what a loaded question (laughs) i think (laughs) oh hard to answer i think like um i think some people would see it and like immediately assume that oh that's for a grad student program i'm not gonna even put my time into that just because of language and stuff it's true i think like i think it's not necessarily for people who are in academia exclusively but i do think like the kind of like central concern of like what of like criticality already imposes a certain kind of like restriction on it right um which i think there is a huge overlap in like people who are either doing who are like writing as i don't know writing within some kind of like mfa program or have an mfa or whatever yeah are you going to try and go into like an mfa i don't know i mean when i say i don't know i mean i don't think i would because they seem expensive and Mm -hmm. like i think i don't know if i need more school (laughs) considering how i just told you i feel about the current amount of school i have I think the way that you talked about literature is like how everyone feels. Oh, interesting. Like, oh yeah, one hundred percent. Everyone like, I get, I guess not everyone, but I would say a large percentage of MFA students probably don't agree with the way that MFAs are ran, or even like yeah. English majors. Were you an English major? Yeah, I'm an English major. I dropped out in 2014 from apathy, and then I went back to school in 2019 after I was, it was kind of like Lucy and Oscar, and I saw like Oscar, he was like, he talks in French, and I'm like, oh, that'd be cool to learn French. And so I go mm-hmm. back, and I didn't have my language requirement yet, so I went into French, it was like the hardest fucking thing I've ever done. And I like had to take like three semesters of that, and yeah, I'm almost done with getting my bachelor's degree finally i take like one or two uh classes a semester mm-hmm. um are you doing french as, are you still doing french no i already uh already got all the requirements that i needed from that yeah how do you feel about your like english major then how do i feel about it well i feel like yeah. i've already spent so much time like putting all the credits into this major and i like the classes that i take because uh that i have to take it because of it but i feel like i'm gonna graduate and then i'm just gonna end up working jobs that i would have worked if i hadn't been going to school but it's Mm. still it's gonna it's gonna help though getting the degree is definitely gonna help i feel Mm -hmm. somewhat it's not gonna be a, a burden to it i guess do you like what you read Mm, I have this class. It's a short story class when we read. It's like a self-independent class where I do all the work kind of like on my own and then I send it in. But mm-hmm. I mean, some of the stories we read are 
def or like the same old stories everyone reads in every class. They're like the yellow wallpaper and like Edgar Allan Poe and stuff. And I was like, oh, I already read all this shit. But then some of the short stories are really good. It just depends on the professor that you get and their mm -hmm. choices. And if they read modern contemporary work or not. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people like fewer people than I would have expected are interested in contemporary literature. That well, because like... the colleges, they don't even inform you that there's people writing right now. Like they give you like Edgar Allan Poe and the classics. And then if you're like even into creative writing, like all your knowledge is going to be based off like the best of the best of the best. And you're always going to feel like shit when you're just like turning in your little short story <laughs> in a creative writing class. And then you don't even know the people that are out there doing it right now. Yeah. Is that so that's like still true, do you think, for like creative writing classes at university? I've never taken one. You should definitely take one. Oh, I don't know. I'm like pretty intimidated. <laughs> so like if you're a grad student though, can you go like take some of the yeah. course? Yeah, I think you can um I I, th I know people who are doing like MFAs concurrently with their PhDs here, so they definitely do that. Do you get like like half price if you're already going to the school? Oh, you don't have to. Um, I don't. I don't think you pay anything in addition. It's just like course credit. So the way that it works. Um, like trying not to be really boring about it but like the way that um funding here works is that for a certain number of years you are guaranteed funding through either like fellowship meaning like you just get the money directly from your department or a combination of teaching and fellowship so mm -hmm. if you are um enrolled as a student you wouldn't be paying any extra money to take classes uh-huh so yeah. what's with the the strike and everything going on at your school so um it is now i think we've we've just passed the two-month anniversary of the contract ratification um and basically last year our contract expired and it was a contract that had been signed for four years and we went on strike to try to get um, basically like the, there were three major demands. One was a higher base wage and a cost of living adjustment. Another was um, the full remission of non-residents supplement, supplemental tuition. So, that's like shortened to NRST and it's this additional fee that um, out of state students have to pay. So in as a graduate student, most like out of state students who are also US citizens can become California residents and that fee is only really relevant for the first year and it's usually paid by your department. Um, but if you're an international student, you can never become a California resident, which means like this like threat of an additional $13,000 being charged is kind of hanging over them. Um, and then 
the third one was like adequate subsidies for childcare. So, and then another thing was like better protections for disabled students, student workers. How, how close were you ever concerned about like, I don't know, it not going through? Well, I guess my preference is that the strike lasted longer until we got what we wanted. Um, I'm not, I, I don't think we have a good contract right now. We made a lot of concessions. Um, there was a kind of excessive focus on base wage to the exclusion of other things that, um, yeah, like we lost a lot of ground and we did not have to sign the contract when we did, but many people in the union um, who are sort of like many people in the union and on the bargaining team were really pushing for the strike to end before the calendar year. Why? What were they? Were they afraid of something happening? So, yeah, the sort of like, there were kind of like competing narratives about um, how to go on strike and how to measure strike power that work sort of constantly in conflict over like the several like yeah how many weeks were we on strike i don't know 10 weeks something like that of the strike so they were afraid that we had lost all the power that we had um from withholding labor by that point because classes were over but um like other people including myself believe that we would have made a huge impact if we withheld grades past the grading deadline and that we could tell that this was effective because the university postponed the grading deadline many of the like ucs postponed the grading deadline um to basically um undermine that strategy of like grade withholding so critical junctures there's like basically this idea that if you like withhold labor, if you prolong the withholding of labor, um, that in itself should be able to injure like the university or harm the university's operations. But that's kind of based on an idea of the university as like a factory, like an auto workers factory or some kind of like production center where like every single day the university sees a loss in profits and therefore they care. But that's not really how a university works. Um, and that's not really how to like measure its critical juncture. So there was that whole thing. <laughs> when do you get pulled into the idea of striking against uh, the school? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I know how to answer that. <laughs> like, you, you said you were you said you were in there for like 10 weeks um mm -hmm. like like the first week you're pretty good you're probably gung-ho about going into the strike right like so how long was, was it in the air that like people were talking about doing the actual strike oh gosh months oh really like we went on strike november 14th but it had been in the works for a really long time it has to be because you have like organizing a strike um at all but let alone across like 10 campuses is it across 10 campuses nine campuses yeah it's across like the entire university of california system 
Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a really wow. big strike. So technically, like, all the headlines are, like, 48,000 workers go on strike. Not everyone actually went on strike. But, you know, that's, like, the union represents 48,000 workers. So when you came to the school, were they already talking about doing a strike? Um... So let's see, I started my program in 2018, right after the previous contract had been ratified, also kind of under murky circumstances. Um, a lot of like, yeah, so sorry, I'm like trying to like talk about this without getting like into <laughs> too much. Of Are you getting in trouble? Of, Oh, no, not like that. I just think it's like there's so much detail involved in like mm -hmm. the different sides in conflict and whatever. Um, but basically like the same people who push through the same group of people who like push through this contract before we really had to also push through the 2018 contract um, like in early in the semester while many of the other um, UC campuses, which are on the quarter system, were still on summer vacation. So there were people who did want to go on strike then, and some of those people who are still around. Mm -hmm. so, um, and then there was also a wildcat strike in spring 2020 that was unfortunately kind of like cut short and had petered out due to the pandemic. So um, in, I believe, winter of 2019, UC Santa Cruz went on a wildcat strike on their own. So um, technically, when we are in, when we have a contract, we're not allowed, like, it's illegal to go on strike, which is why they had to, like, go on an illegal strike. And some graduate students were dismissed as a result of their activity. And then people at other UC campuses decided to go on a wildcat strike in solidarity with those workers to try to get their, their jobs back as well as to like, you know, improve our own working conditions. What's a wildcat strike? Oh yeah, it's just an illegal strike. So wait, wait so our... legal strike? <laughs> yeah. So um the strike that we went on this past fall was a legal strike because our contract had ended. Um, so when you are not, like, when the contract is over, you are technically allowed to go on a strike. But we have, I think, like, a clause, a no-strike clause in our contract. Okay. Are there other state, like, do other states, like, grad students, are they, do you think they're in unions? guess probably not because like unionization of academic labor is relatively recent so um like the uc union i think is like one of the oldest ones and that's from the 90s and um but yeah there's been a lot of unionization efforts um in the recent years i wouldn't say i'm like an expert on this so i I'm like a little afraid to get things wrong, but like um, Columbia went on strike recently. New School is another like UAW yes. one. Um, Temple, I don't know if they're affiliated or independent. Um, there are a lot of graduate 
workers now trying to unionize, I believe, including um, in Texas. So Texas graduate, like UT graduate workers are trying to unionize and fight for a cost of living adjustment or like a COLA. Um, I believe Iowa as well. Um, but yeah, it's like all over. Do you prefer uh, school in like America or China? Oh, I wasn't in school in China. I was working. I was well, in school prefer, in the UK. You prefer the work to the schooling? <laughs> Honestly, I think I like I think if I had a good job, like one that I liked, I would prefer work in some ways. And did, I didn't have you not yet had a good job though? You said you <laughs> taught over there, like taught English. Mm-hmm. How was yeah. that? So I was at a very weird school that was started by um a beverage company like imagine if coca-cola started like opening private schools that would be very interesting (laughs) yeah it was like so basically they hired a couple people but mostly it's a like it's a company that's that doesn't know how to run a school and i was also there in the second year that it opened and um it was like a first year of a big expansion so like the previous year they only had a couple elementary school classes and then they tried to add a middle school the year I was there. So it was just like super chaotic. Um, I don't have like teaching qualifications either. So I had worked in a school and taught some classes at a private school, also chaotic here um, in California, I mean. So that was like basically my experience. <laughs> so Isn't there the company that like hired you though? Do they like mm-hmm. send you out to schools? That they've chosen? Um, no, they like built a school. They like actually the building was still under construction when I when we started. Was it separate from the the uh, cola company? Yeah, or technically they make like I think well their main product that people know is like drinking water. They like okay. sell bottled water. Um, did yeah. they did the company that hired you though feel like that was sketchy? Or were they concerned or did they not care? I have no idea. They are so they were so removed from us. Um Really? It was they hired people with like experience in education administration to kind of like head this bilingual school. Um and it was like partly Americans who are like running the sort of like bilingual English language curriculum and then partly like a Chinese local Chinese staff. So it was also kind of like um there were definitely like communications issues because the like principal and vice principal who were American knew Chinese, but many of the teachers they hired did not know Chinese and there was like their first time in China and they had to like work with these with like Chinese counterparts in a way to like co-run and co-teach a classroom with no what language. A, what a clusterfuck. It was such a clusterfuck. I had to do a lot of translation, which is not what I like thought I would be doing. Mm-hmm. Did you um, make good money though? It was pretty good because I also didn't have to pay for my lodging. Like they paid oh. for my loft apartment in like my downtown loft apartment which was like nice and i kind of miss it especially like living in an expensive area where that's i would not afford be able to afford that here um 
and we ate a lot of meals like in the school cafeteria which like wasn't amazing but it was free so have and then on top of that you got income have you considered writing about all of this like in like a novel or poetry i have not really <laughs> maybe though i think like i think novels are actually quite hard i i like um I just feel like sometimes when I like read novels, there I'm just very aware there are so many things that can go wrong. I really like you're aware in the you're like aware of the writing that could go wrong. Oh yeah, like I think it's like a really hard thing to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) to write like a good and convincing novel. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would. I'm I'm up to the task in some ways. I also just like read kind of in translation because I had to read very quickly a very bad novel. So maybe that's why that's on my mind. Um, oh really? I feel like well, if you read if you read bad novels, it helps you to write a good novel. I can see that because it's like so clear what's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although I do think like identifying what's wrong is like one thing, and then being able to do better is a totally different thing. Oh yeah. like with your editing do you see do you come across a lot of bad like articles or whatever you guys receive um yeah like so academic writing is like famously not very good and Mm -hmm. i realize that now a good standard is just to be like clear and boring (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but i really like editing actually i think it's interesting um i always think of it kind of as a fun activity in a way to like try to bring out this writer's thoughts more clearly and mm-hmm. to help um, restructure things in a more logical fashion or, you know, like this, this sort of like the, the very endeavor of like helping somebody else communicate more clearly, I find pretty rewarding. If you guys started receiving like wild entertaining pieces that maybe wasn't so academic would you turn those away like immediately (laughs) i think that we've gotten stuff like that in the past and um or like i guess are we thinking for key or qp for qp like the academic journal it would probably just have to be like a no (laughs) for key we've like said no but with like a you know like a nice rejection like we really love this it's not quite what we're trying to do here but yeah would you ever edit a magazine that was more like diy or like yeah i think so i think i really in many ways feel like that's like more it's i mean it's definitely more fun (laughs) oh i like edited i'm like my um Sorry, to backtrack a little, I like co-ran a translation studies workshop for a little bit. Um, and that sort of, I think it was that same, it was one of the pandemic semesters where we just kind of sent out a call for people to um, submit short pieces, like excerpts of translated works and kind of just like printed it out at Home Depot. And honestly, that was really fun. fun. I feel like that kind of like, yeah, and I, feel like I got to meet people and like I have an association between them and their work that I really like um yeah if your editor the other editors at your magazine started asking questions about Shabby Dollhouse and they tried to join like Shabby Dollhouse readings would you be like 
like, oh no, get away from my my group that I found. That's really funny. I mean, low key, I would not want to share. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Um, um, I mean, realistically, no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I do kind of like having this as a separate space. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, because it's like something you found that's like doing this really cool shit, and you want it to be like people that you know. Well, also for me to be like, for it to be a little like untainted by this sort of like semi-professional world mm-hmm. that I'm totally. in. It's kind of like nice to not have to worry about. I don't know, like sounding dumb to a professor or to a like a future colleague or something like that, and just really be able to hang out, talk about books, and talk about. You ever, you ever feel dumb saying something in the group? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I, I have. Do. I do all the time, and I feel yeah. like everyone's like more educated than me, and they're like higher up on the literary scale. I guess. I guess for me, I'm like, oh, a bunch of these people are like real writers, and <laughs> I'm just mm-hmm. like. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to read your poem? Oh, sure. I don't. I guess I can pull it up. How many other poems do you have, like in your like Word, like Microsoft account, if you use that, or Gosh. in your notes? Um, I think like quite a few at varying stages. If that makes sense, no, I that like. Really does make sense. Yeah. Um, I don't know the number, but just. And then what do you plan on doing after you graduate from your, weren't you working on like something you told me you were working on something to admit like admissions to something? Hmm. I'm working on my qualifying exams. Is yes. that what saying? Okay. Yeah. So basically the structure of a PhD is like you spend the first few years doing coursework and then you have to take qualifying exams, which for me, I have like kind of ended up postponing for various reasons um but i really have to do those (laughs) i think i like i think i like fucking around a little too much for academia do you ever consider like dropping out i think about it all the time (laughs) really i mean i think it's like you know it's it's kind of the easy thing to think about when things are hard yeah um at least if you are of a certain disposition it's just like maybe i'll just quit um i don't think i will right now um i think like i want to at least get past this point of like this particular milestone of like taking these exams maybe i'll reassess um i think i would like to finish a ph like a dissertation just because it's like the kind of project that I will never have any of like the necessary supports to do outside of a university context, like money, time, literal access to journals, because it's like so hard to get access when you're not affiliated with a university. Uh, yeah, it's cost like yeah. hundreds of fucking dollars if you're not. If, I was like, when um, I had dropped out, I was like, oh, let me see if I can look up studies and shit. It's like you get one free article and that's it. And then it's like, I will send you for, anything you want. Like, mm-hmm. I swear, if you, like, ever want to, like, compile a bibliography of, of like, PDFs I have access to, I'm, like, so happy to share because I'm, like, so mad about how hard it is to get this stuff. It's insane. Um, but, yeah. So, I pulled it up. Should I? 
do you but do you like at least do you like learning like when you like learn yeah. something new about poetry or something i don't know well i was taking these classes it's, it's undergrad classes but i still like learning about a new movement or phrase or something that has to do with literature yeah and i wish that could exist that could exist outside of an institution right yeah i think like i do ultimately even though i complain all the time (laughs) um it's nice to be surrounded by so many things like to encounter so many things that i don't know and to have so much to learn um Mm -hmm. and to also be required to do it even though that part can be quite painful sometimes Mm -hmm. and yeah to be surrounded by people who are also working on things that i don't really understand and can learn from yeah would you like to read your poem okay all right We all see something different when we look at the sky. Meniscus of streetlights drifts like duckweed along the rims of my eyes, languid, flickering for hours, symphonic, white hot, in each shattered mirror on the pavement. Mold eats silver, eats air, eats dust, eats wood, eats grass, eats breasts, eats leather, eats the four of cups, eats velour and weathered rugs, eats envy, eats time, eats cash, shits grain, shits watercolor splotches, excretes blue raspberry effluvia. In mossy dark where music puddles, the refrain goes, now there's no more winter like this, which is to say, nobody puts baby in a corner. Flash, fermata. People walk their turtles through Parisian arcades in 1839. The year before, a scientist at Ecole Centrale deciphered Celios, but enough about the world on fire. Moonlit, even you swell into surface. Now there's no more winter like this. Fuck, that's really good. Thanks. How long did you spend working on that? I don't know. <laughs> like a year or like seven months or like a month? I watched this movie, like, oh gosh, what was it? It was a Georgian movie. Um called we all see something different when we look at the sky and i wrote it after that and like we workshopped it in caroline's class and then i kind of revised it a bit wait you workshop like the movie oh no no the the poem but like i wrote this after watching that movie what how many months before that was that during the class yeah okay that came to you real quick (laughs) i think all the education you've had it like (laughs) simmered into your work I don't know. I do like parts. I like rereading this now, like a year later. I do see where um, different things I like read or encountered just sort of ended up in this, mm-hmm. though, which is interesting. And I think, um, especially with poetry, it's cool when you see someone take many aspects of things they like and they put it into one poem. And also, like your use of space is like it's pretty confident because usually most people they just left justify everything, but you've like you've implemented the phrases into a particular space or pattern that was like a caroline suggestion i am pretty sure among other people in the class but that definitely was something that happened that was like a revision that it was implemented after our workshop it was a great class everyone should take it she's doing another one yeah she's awesome yeah she knows what the fuck she's doing <laughs> yeah i hope her debut goes well 
Yeah, me too. Um, it's I'm crazy excited. that this is like her first book. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I feel like I'm, it's been like fermenting, right? So, like, what? Back to your poem. Do you read? Do you read a lot of poetry outside of the book club? I think I read poetry like sporadically outside the book club. Mm-hmm. It depends on honestly on whether it's like the semester or not. <laughs> I think I like I read really widely and I think as a result I don't read I don't feel like I read a lot of anything in particular. It's because you're you're a grad student and you have to like yeah. they force you to read all this shit. It's true. I like definitely I enjoy reading poetry, but I don't feel like I have I don't feel like I have like a deep expertise in it um, or in like contemporary writing in general, which is like why when we're at book club and I say something, I'm like, oh, no, I don't know. (laughs) I feel like it takes like seven or 10 years of reading poetry to have a small grasp on poetry, but basically no one knows anything. It's all bullshit. (laughs) It's fun, though. I like found out relatively recently that um on the block next to my apartment there's been a regular poetry reading series that like has gone on for years wow so i plan on going to those more often and yeah would you host your own there oh i feel like i would love to host one it would be fun i don't have anywhere good to host though (laughs) we'll do it at that place where they host their readings Oh yeah, they're they're it's at yeah. their house. Okay. It's like in their backyard. <laughs> if you hosted your own reading and you could choose anyone and there's no like travel implications or money implications, who would you choose? And where would you choose it at? Oh my god. The hard question. Um This is like not a single person i guess i think it would be fun to have people from book club over because when we um met up in philly it was really fun and yeah where would i have it i don't know eli's eli's is like a dive bar in oakland it's really nice (laughs) they have like live music there so it would be easy to set up a reading who'd you meet in philly (laughs) um i guess like Lucy and Chris were there as well as like um Rochelle and Caroline book club people Kristen um was there as well Sebastian obviously because he lives there um Jody let me stay with her um I guess Erica I also met I'm like afraid now that of of of, of leaving people out <laughs> just you know are you gonna meet them? Like, are you gonna like? Are they coming to California? I don't know their plans. Um, I don't think so. Maybe they'll it's hear this and, and they come <laughs> to California. Um. Yeah, I don't know. If anyone wants to visit, though, I'd love to show them around. I like taking people around here. Um, I think Stacy's coming after AWP in Seattle or something like that. Oh, I don't wow. know. After you, okay, how much time do you have left? 
Um, I can hang around for a bit. I haven't eaten dinner yet, though, so I'm probably gonna do that soon. Do you want to go get dinner and then eat it while you are interviewed? No, that would embarrass me because of chewing okay. noises. <laughs> okay. Well, there's some like thing on Zoom. They're like, I took classes on Zoom. Like, there's no eating in front of the camera. I always thought that was so weird. I'm like, I can't fucking eat my own house. Okay. I think like that's very funny. I definitely had students who would like do Zoom class, like lying in bed and for sure eating as well, which I didn't really mind. I don't mind it when students eat in my class in general, but I personally would be embarrassed to do it because of my chewing noises. <laughs> so is teaching college better than uh, like over in China? Yeah, well, over so when I was teaching in China, I was like doing I was ostensibly doing like language support for middle school students. Um, but also occasionally like third graders and being called into substitute random classes and stuff like that um as far as age group goes like younger kids not my thing i think i think they're like okay one-on-one -on -one. like i enjoy tutoring younger kids but in groups they're a bit overwhelming um so yeah i do prefer teaching college you remind me a and lot of carmen oh do i yeah and her funny. answers oh really <laughs> yeah she, she, she tried to do like i think younger kids and she didn't like that, and so she went off to college and teaches college. Because, yeah. like, at least, like, with college kids, you don't have to do discipline. Like, oh, and yeah. the only, like, you don't have to, like, teach them how to be students. Whereas in, with, a, like, elementary school, you know, they're very wiggly. You, like, literally have to, like, train them into sitting down and like you know opening a book and stuff like that which some yeah i don't know but with college students maybe they are on their phones or they're like clearly not listening but it's like a time-honored tradition to not listen in class and you're not really bothering anyone else there's also like at least in my classes which are relatively small you know, usually you don't really have a problem with people carrying on conversations while you're trying to talk. It's just easier in, so in that respect. But you do, you do also do teach more interesting stuff. Sorry, I should have gotten to that so, part sooner. So what do you teach in your grad um, thing? So this year I have been teaching um, reading and composition courses. So last semester I was teaching a class on um, memory and film. And this semester, I'm teaching a class on contemporary China called The Time Is Now, um, also mostly through film. And the these classes are kind of interesting because they're like part content courses, but part like how do you teach academic writing, right? And mm -hmm. how do you teach students to read um, works of scholarship, which are written in a language and concerning ideas that are pretty different from what they've encountered before. So you end up kind of doing a bit of a balancing act between these two things. Like, how do you write interestingly about film and like watch films in an engaged manner? But also like, yeah, how do you read an academic article? So what films did you choose for your class? So this semester um, we watched The Piano in a Factory directed by Zhang Meng 
24 City, directed by Jia Zhang Ke, Hero, directed by Zhang Yimou, the like Marshall's one. And then um, for tomorrow, the students have to watch Kylie Blues, directed by Bi Gan. Um, and then the last week is going to be a section where they just like send in stuff that they found on the internet, basically like Chinese social media or memes or whatever. Um, and yeah, these films kind of deal alternately with like the condition of post-socialist China and sort of like representing that cinematically and with like cinematic time and speed. Yeah. Sorry, that was my pitch. <laughs> no, you're fine. I'll, I have to let you go soon because I've had you around for like an hour and a half. I just feel like I could talk to you forever about your interests and stuff. I guess I, I just one last thing is like, so you when you when you were starting up, you weren't really interested in like learning Chinese, and now you're teaching classes with like a Chinese film. So when do you go from you're you're now interested in Chinese and the language? I think like for like me taking French classes, it's like a totally different shift to learn about literature, or it's a totally different shift to learn about cinema in French, which I'm very interested in, but. To like sit down and like really learn about all these things. When do you? When does that? The Chinese film like come like interest. You become interested in like Chinese media. I think um, like late in my undergrad program, when I started taking like upper division classes, was when I became more interested in them, or like Who, more interested in like Chinese literature and media. And what's like the? I guess you don't do favorites, but like what's the most compelling like Chinese film and why? Oh. One second. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, my friend and I watched this nine-hour documentary okay. <laughs> called "What's the Threat." Sorry, this, maybe I should have two answers, but it's the one that I'm obsessed with right now. Um, you guys really sat there for nine hours. Okay, we took a lunch break. That's insane. Also, we weren't paying attention carefully the whole time, you know? Well, like, yeah, I wouldn't either. But it was, like, honestly a very fun experience to, like, like marathon this three hours. It's technically divided into three parts. And basically, Wang Bing, um, uh, the, the, the director, went to a factory in Shenyang in 1999 and 2000. And he would go and just, like, record... The workers um in these factories that were being like that had been that had basically gone bankrupt so this was like a major manufacturing center in china since the 30s i think when it was like manufacturing arms um for for the japanese because the japanese um had occupied that area anyway so basically like it's like all filmed on um digital video and it's like just a really weird movie. The first part is set in the factories. Um, the second part is like in the neighborhood. Um, and then the third part is kind of like on the railways or something. And there's like obviously no plot, but you just kind of have this interesting sense of like one, the director is a real creep because he's like following these people around into like the bathhouses and like, zooming in and like a memorable scene is when he like films a bunch of men watching porn on a tv together yeah it's like very personal <laughs> like in a bathhouse 
no no like they're just like in a room like wow <laughs> they're just like in like a conference room with a tv you know or not a conference room but you know it's just a just a regular room do they so, know he's there yeah oh yeah um so yeah it's like kind of weird and fun in those ways but it also kind of does a very interesting thing i suppose with like the recording of demolition um which is a big like urban demolition is a recurring trope in a lot of chinese cinema around this time because of how um basically like entire neighborhoods were being demolished for construction um in cities at this time etc so yeah it's really cool um i think i need to have like a less a less like a more achievable answer though than telling Perfect. people to spend nine hours <laughs> I, I mean can more... they um what do you mean can they like is this like on like youtube or vimeo or just like no, we downloaded it you downloaded it like one of my friends is really good at torrenting i guess i thought you went to a theater and like sat down no, no. oh no but we have um we have like like a projection room basically oh, wow. where you can like watch it um but what is a movie that is not that movie <laughs> that i can think of at this moment i keep thinking of like weird things maybe that are not as like uh, sorry another one i thought of is like song of youth which is this communist propaganda movie that's also like three hours long but like incredibly moving when you think about it um it's, it's good though i i mean it's good if you like approach it with the right mindset like mm -hmm. i felt really i was like i will join the communist army after watching that wow. <laughs> i was a communist for two weeks i was reading mal's book and then i got to like the dirty stuff and i was like i'm not gonna be a communist anymore <laughs> it's like um, right after maybe, high school that's funny maybe you should watch this movie <laughs> i should it's like wow we do need to be like i don't know it was, there's like a whole plot about like joining students joining the left-wing movement to fight off japanese imperialism incredible incredible stuff um yeah okay two I last questions like, okay yeah wait what are you saying Oh, I was like, I'm still trying to think of like a better answer. That's like, what is a good Chinese movie instead of like these weird ass answers? But I think I'm gonna stick with a weird one. I'm gonna be uh, talking to Lucy on Sunday, maybe. Do you have any questions for her? Oh, um, gosh, do I have questions? Hmm. Okay. For Lucy, in Clausium Vague, she like writes about how they eat very well every day. And I guess I'm wondering, like, what are what are her weeknight meals? And is it still true now that she's not stuck during the pandemic? Like she's not isolated and quarantined. <laughs> Sorry, that's like maybe kind of, <laughs> kind of silly, but think about that line. I'm like, oh, I wonder if they are still eating very well. Um, I always thought about the line where she was talking about Oscar's story, like in her head, like hypothetically. And then she was like, well, I can't tell that story because it's not mine. I was like, no, mm -hmm. you have to. <laughs> I don't like this idea yeah. that you can't 
write something because it's someone else's life. Mm. If there was a shabby doll house, like if I did a 30 minute shabby doll house show, or Wait, just like based off, if I did a sh like a fan show based off the group and shabby doll house and Lucy stuff, it's only 30 minutes. Like, what would you want to hear about? Like poetry stuff or like an analysis? Hmm. You wouldn't what, listen what to I... it. Like... <laughs> no, that's not what I'm thinking. I'm just like, wow, 30 minutes is not actually a lot of time. I know. Um, it's like, um, so what would I want to? Would you listen to something that was an hour? I would put it on. I'd probably like, I'm not that good at listening to things TVH. Like, I, I'm not mm -hmm. good at like audiobooks and stuff like that, but I would put it on. Um, I'm still thinking about this question though. Like, what would I want to know about a chef? I guess like. How do people feel like they're literary tastes have maybe changed or like what it means to be participating in this um like in how has their like sense of what it means to be like cultivating this kind of like literary space or literary project or community changed over the past few past decade or so really is there anything that changed is there like what are is there like a difference in what they're looking for now, I guess? Okay. Oh, yeah. So let me end this. Let's see. Uh, this was Lo-Fi Lit episode 13 or 14 with Yvonne Lim from Berkeley. Everyone, I hope you had a nice time. That's my ending. <laughs> All right. I love All right, I'll let you go. Thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Yeah. Um, we should talk again. Thank you. That was Yvonne Lynn with Lo-Fi Lit from Berkeley, California. Um, I'm glad you guys listened to it, and I hope you enjoyed. And I might be talking to Lucy on Sunday, which is really exciting. I, that was an awesome conversation. I could talk to her forever. She was really fun. She's friendly. Um, I put on a lot of weight. Jesus. Um... Yeah, hope you guys enjoyed the listen. And I will talk to you guys next time. I would like to do a show, though, based off Shabby Doll House and based off Lucy and Sarah Jean stuff and the people that are from that community. So I'll let you guys go. This is a great time. I want to keep talking. I want to keep hosting shit. But I should, I should go, I guess. All right, I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye.